how, how do I deal with this, Ray? Do I, do I just take this out? Do I bend it down? What do I do? Just bend it over? All right, wonderful. Great. Now I can see you better. Some of you try to hide behind there. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 19. Way at the end of your Bibles. Um, almost the final chapter in, uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, the reason for our plunge this morning into uh, Revelation 19 is really a, a pragmatic one. It has to do with my week and uh, the things that I, I, I spent my time on this week. Uh, I spent two days at College Church in Wheaton, which is um, the great church in, um, in the suburbs, Wheaton campus, just right across the, the campus of that. And I spent my days there at a, at a conference for pastors entitled The Workshop on biblical exposition. Uh, they, they, they hold this um, workshop every year. It's real close by. I can just duck in for a couple of days. It's wonderful. And, and uh, they, have, they bring speakers in. And all of it, though, really, really comes back to the basics of, of preaching. It's just they, they have a heart there to help expositors of the Word, uh, biblical exposition, help, help, help preachers and pastors just to get the Bible right and to, to, get it, to get it better. So there are, there are speaking sessions, there are model sermons sometimes, and there are some workshop sessions where you've got to prepare a text and then present it before other pastors. Just say, well, this is how I would approach it. And you back and forth. It's theology and community. It's very helpful for me. And uh, it really has, has helped, you know, again, focus. What, what is it that, that I'm trying to do as I, I preach to you all each week? And my, my goal is simply this, is that, that I want to set God before your hearts. That's what I want to do. I want to set God before your hearts. And I know that if, if the Scriptures are clear, I will accomplish my goal. Really, that is the heart of biblical exposition, is to take, take the truth of God's Word, open it up, help you to see that that's indeed what it says, and then call you to appropriate response to what God's Word says. Sometimes just worship, sometimes action, sometimes belief, faith, whatever the application is. That's all biblical exposition is. And that's my aim every week. I just want to, you, you to encounter God each week. I want you to see the glories of Christ each week in the pages of Scripture. And to the extent that, that I unfold the Scriptures and do so according to what God has said, then, then we'll just ride the wave of the Holy Spirit in these things. Well, our focus this week uh, at, at College Church was preaching apocalyptic literature. You say, well, what is apocalyptic literature? Apocalyptic literature is, is those, those, those portions of Scripture which are, are dealing with the future with uh, heavy laden imagery and symbolism. So when that comes to mind, think of books like Ezekiel and think of books like Daniel and like books like Revelation. And so having thought much this week about apocalyptic texts in the Scripture, uh, I wanted to open for you one of them, which is Revelation chapter 19. speaks about the coming of Christ, the, the final battle, the last war, if you will. And the text is really appropriate for us this morning because the end of my message, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's a time for us to reflect, reflect back upon the death of Christ, the forgiveness of sins that we have by faith in Him. It's a time for us to rejoice in these things that through Jesus we can be made right with God the Father. Because He became our sacrifice, He gives us His righteousness. Now, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there are two things that we are, we are proclaiming. We're proclaiming, first of all, our faith in Christ. We believe in Jesus. We have taken, taken of Him. We have eaten His flesh. We have drinking of His blood. We have embraced Him. We believe in Him. Second, though, we proclaim His death until He comes. We proclaim His second coming. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's like we're proclaiming the crucifixion of Christ until Jesus comes back. And that's what we're doing. And Revelation 19 is going to bring our attention this morning to His coming. To His coming back. That is, that's our hope. That's what we're proclaiming as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And my, my aim this morning, really, as we, we look at Revelation 19, is to, to remind you again of the character of Christ. I, mean, I think too often we can think of Jesus as a softy who, who drifted around Jerusalem wearing a dress and saying nice things to nice people. Now that's, that's obviously a bad characteristic of Jesus, but sometimes we just think of Him meek and mild. And the first time He came, He came meek and mild. He was the lamb to be slaughtered. And He was. 
But the reality is that He will come again in a different way than He came. He'll come as a lion, giving no mercy to His enemies. And that's what we're going to see here in Revelation 19. We see Jesus the lion from the tribe of Judah pouncing on His prey. Let's read our text this morning. Revelation 19, we're going to look at verses 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark and the beast, and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came out from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's a great, it's a great text, the return of Christ. Now really, the entire book of Revelation has been leading up to this point in, in some measure. It's the, it's the conflict, not fully, but mostly all resolved. There's still another battle in Revelation 20. Perhaps the same battle. Look a lot, a lot alike. But everything leading up to this point, we see, we see John describing his situation. In, in, in Revelation 1, he talks about he was in exile, political exile on the island of Patmos. And while he was in the Spirit of the Lord's day, he received a revelation. And, and God told him to write these things in a book and send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And send these things to them. Write what you see. And we see in chapter 4 that he summoned up to heaven to see this glorious scene of, of God, the holy God in heaven, and then of Christ upon his throne, the slaughtered lamb. He describes those things. And then his attention after heaven then focuses down upon the earth in chapter 6, dealing with the opening of the seals. The six seals when the judgment begins. And, and as they begin, they, they bring terror upon the inhabitants of the earth. Famines and wars and death come to many. So bad it is that in chapter 6, verse 16, people were hiding themselves in the caves and the mountains. And they said, let it fall on us because you want to hide us from the wrath of God which is coming which has come. And they say, who can stand? The implication is we can't because against Him there's no way we can stand. That's just the beginning of what what John saw. Beginning in chapter 8, he saw the trumpet judgments. We saw these angels trumpeting, blowing trumpets. And as they sounded, God's wrath continued to be poured out upon the earth. Cataclysmic destruction has taken place. A third of the earth destroyed. Disturbances in the heavens as well. And then as you trace it on through, you can see that the, the rebellion still continues. Though God is pouring out His wrath upon the people and upon the disobedient earth, rebellion continues to go. At one point in Revelation 11, two witnesses of God arrive on the scene and the world is against them and rejoice when they are finally killed. In Revelation 12, we see the, the, the whole scope of redemption that when, the, when Christ is attacked by the devil and, and and rescued out of him. He just raging war is the devil. In Revelation 13, we see beasts arising from the sea and from the earth to deceive those on the earth. And the result is a cosmic war. 
It's not really so much a war. It's more like a judgment. A cosmic judgment is taking place. People are rebelling and God is judging them and striking them down, but they're still rebelling, shaking their fists at God all the way through. Slowly but surely, He's judging the earth. Revelation 16 then comes with the bowl judgments. Just, just pouring out the wrath of God as if the wrath of God is here in the bowls and just pouring them out upon the earth. And you can see the people still rebelling and greatly resisting the Lord, even in their great affliction, refusing to repent. And then in chapter 17 and 18, we see the great city of Babylon falling. So just everything's been going, been going down and there's this battle been going on. But in, in chapter 19, then we see the salvation coming. The fourfold Alleluia. 19 verse 1. Alleluia. Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. 19 verse 3. And the second time they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Here the saints of God are rejoicing because wicked Babylon has been conquered. And, and, and just similarly, I'll just tell you that this, we reflect here upon the war that Christ wages with the with the unrighteous of the world and wins every righteous bone in us and everything within us ought to cry out saying, yes, judgment has finally come. God, you finally vindicate yourself. There's much injustice going on now. There's a time we can just rejoice in that. And and that's where your heart will resonate here. That's what's happening here when they sing hallelujah. Her smoke, the smoke of Babylon is rising up forever and ever. Babylon, the wicked harlot, has been judged. Amen. And then we see the third Hallelujah coming in verse 4. Amen. Hallelujah. And we see the fourth one coming at the end of verse 6. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And then it's followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb where, where God has gathered His church. They've come to be wed with Jesus, to be with Him in everlasting happiness, enjoying each other in holy matrimony. And then we see the coming of Christ beginning in verse 11. This describes the final victory of Christ over the beast and the false prophet particularly. These are, are Satan's followers, Satan's chief, uh, chief men. The text breaks down into three parts. And, and you can see that clearly just there in your text. It, three phrases are repeated. If you look in verse 11, it says, And I saw... If you look at verse 17, it says, Then I saw. And then verse 19, Then I saw. Three times this text, he sees, he sees something. He sees something. What does he see? Well, verse 11, he sees heaven opened. In verse 17, he sees an angel standing. In verse 19, he sees the beasts and the kings assembled. And so these three scenes are before our eyes and they form the outline of my text today. As we look at each of them, we will find encouragement in our souls. And I trust that God will... Help us to see His glory. Let, let's look at the first one. Here's the first one. We see preparing for war, verses 11 through 16. Here we see Jesus preparing for war, or maybe coming for war. I just find it. It's Jesus is who we're looking at here. He's ready. Verse 11, we read, He saw heaven opened. Back in chapter 4, heaven was opened. John was summoned up into it. This time heaven is opened, and we see Jesus coming out of it, coming, coming to the earth to judge. It's clear that it's Jesus. We can pick up some things. His names in which He's called, particularly at verse 13, He's called the Word of God. Traces back to John 1, where He's called the Word of God. The Word, John 1.14, became flesh and has dwelt among us. This is Jesus Himself. And, and look at how Jesus is described. He's described as, as coming on a, a white horse. Now, uh, we saw a white horse coming in chapter 6, verse 2, part of one of the seal judgments. And in that time when He came, He was um, one of the four living creatures, had a crown given to Him and went out conquering to conquer. Uh, when, when in the Scriptures, when in Revelation particularly, you see people on white horses, you see them coming to conquer. This is, this is wartime. Even when, when the armies come, they are coming, verse 14, on white horses. That's why I use this terminology, preparing for war. I mean, here, here's an army. Here's the, the heavenly army being led by Jesus on a white horse. The armies that follow Him are on white horses as well. They're coming to fight. It is a battle. War terminology saturates these verses with the armies, as I said in verse 14, with the white horses. Also, in verse 15, it speaks about a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. A sword is a lethal weapon. 
this is a war taking place. This is a war. It's, it's maybe not, it's not being fought yet, but it's being prepared. And, and Jesus is coming. So we got one front coming from heaven. So we see. And then we see Jesus being described as the one who sat on this horse being faithful and true. These words are synonyms. Faithful, true. It's, it's difficult to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be faithful and true? How, how, do, they, how do they exactly do they, they mesh? For all, all intents and purposes, they are, but they're repeated. They're, they're the same, but they're repeated for emphasis. Jesus is the faithful one. He is the true one. He's the truly faithful one. He's the faithful true one. That's what these verses are saying. Every promise that Jesus would make will come true. Unlike the, the false prophet and the beast who deceived the world, Revelation 13, verse 14. Even here in this text, in verse 20, we see the beast and the false prophet deceiving. Right? They perform signs in His presence by which He deceived those who would receive the mark of the beast. But Jesus isn't like that. He isn't the deceiver. He isn't the deceptive one. He's the one that comes with, with true promises. He's the faithful one. As He comes back waging war, He shows Himself how true His promises are. If you look in verse 11, it says that He judges. In, in righteousness, He judges and wages war. When Jesus judges, He judges in righteousness. There's no unrighteousness. He's not being bribed as a judge. He's not missing the mark in His judgment. All His judgments are true. He, when Jesus wages war, He wages a just war. I think about in our day and age, in the past recent years, there's been questions that float around about our role in Iraq. You know, should we have gone in there? Should we, have, should we have invaded Iraq in the first place? Was it just money? Was it just oil that was um, motivating us? What about the weapons of mass destruction? Were they really there? How much did uh, you know, the leadership of our country deceive us? How much were they just disinformed? Was this really a just war? Should this really have taken place? Well, the war that Jesus fights here, there's going to be no question ever about the war that that he gauges. This is a just war. In fact, it's one of the things the book of Revelation shows. One of the, one of the things you read through the book of Revelation, you'll see a, a polarity. You will see God's servants on the one side and the servants of the beast and the servants of the dragon and the servants of the, the false prophets over here. And, and, and those who are on the Lord's side are called blameless and no lie is found in their mouth, Revelation 14.5. Whereas on the other hand, you have those who follow the, the, the beast and they have hands that are unclean they're, they practice abomination and lying. And, and one of the things that, that Revelation does is really puts a wedge and says it's clear that, that some take the mark of God upon themselves, right? When God seals them with the mark so they can't be detected. And others are taking this mark of the beast, whatever this is. They, they have followed the beast and some have followed Christ. And they're just two, you either have the mark or you don't have the mark. Either you're following Jesus or you're not. There's no like, there's no like wishy-washy at all in the book of Revelation because in the end time when God opens our hearts up and shows us there's going to be no problem distinguishing. In day in our, our day and age, it's difficult. Sometimes, oh, they kind of go to church. Well, they're kind of interested. You, you don't know. The jury's out on many people. I think of many people I know. The jury's out on them. Well, I see some signs here, but I see some signs over here, and I'm not sure where they are with their faith in Christ. You know, when, when Jesus comes, it's just going to separate them from one side. You have sheep on the one side. You have goats on the other. And it's going to be clear to see and his war is going to be just and his judgments are going to be righteous. No mistakes in the judgment of Jesus. The next phrase might speak about why there's no mistakes. His eyes are a flame of fire. Kids, can you picture this? David, can you picture this? His eyes are a flame of fire. You know? Maybe he's got red contacts in. You know, he's just burning out like this. You know, so when you look at the eyes of Jesus, you just you know, this light and and who knows what that is? Maybe it's a fire of wrath. Maybe it's a fire of intensity. Maybe, maybe it's the, the penetrating ability that he has to look and see the hearts of men. We don't know. But that's, that's how we see Jesus. Jesus with fiery eyes coming out of heaven. And the next phrase here, he's got on his head many diadems. This is indicating his rule and authority. In the book of Revelation, this imagery is often used. Crowns with diadems. Diadems are just, you know, ribbons or, or some kind of writings on the crowns signifying the, the extent to the rule to which, which the one wearing the crown has rule over. In Revelation 12.3, the red dragon has seven diadems upon his head, meaning that he's got, you know, sovereignty perhaps over seven nations or, 
you know, just speaks the extent of his sovereignty. Revelation 13:1, the beast has ten diadems upon his head. Whoa. One had seven, one had ten, and now Jesus has many. We don't how many are many? We don't know. But it's more than seven, and it's more than ten. It shows that Jesus has more authority than than the beast and the dragon. It's the extent of his rule. And, and the reason why he's got more diadems is because he has more authority. He has more rule than these. So we get this picture of Jesus coming out, riding on a white horse, flaming eyes of fire, this crown with many diadems. And then, love this phrase, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Jesus, will you tell you what the name is? Nope. What's your name? Nope, not going to tell you. It's his prerogative to hide it and we're going to leave it hidden today. We're not going to guess. But somehow it probably has to do with his authority and power and it's his prerogative to hide that name. It just gives a mysterious, keeps Jesus mysterious, right? We never figure him out. Then we come to verse 13. We continue just, just this apocalyptic describing of Jesus. And, and you know there's, there's debate about how, how far do you push the symbols? Will Jesus really come on a white horse or is it going to be different? I mean, it talks several times about His appearing is going to be like lightning that flashes across the sky. Was well, it going to appear as a lightning? Is it going to appear as a horse? I, I think the issue with apocalyptic literature, we talked about it some this week at, at this workshop, is that uh, trying to describe the realities of heaven and the reality of the second return of Christ are are just so hard that the Bible describes it in several ways and I believe we ought to think of Jesus returning this way whether He actually returns or not. It's going to be like this. Or it's going to be worse. Or it's going to be more powerful. It's going to be bigger than you ever thought. I mean, we can get this picture of Him coming on a white horse. It's a, it's a dominating kind of view. But it's going to be bigger than that. It's going to be grander than that. But it's going to be like that. So He comes back. And that's, that's the difficulty, the apocalyptic literature. How, how far do you press the symbolism and how far, how far don't you? I'm one that just says, well, if God tells us that, let's just believe literally and uh, let's just think of it that way, but understanding that we're trying to describe the realities of Christ coming back to destroy the world. How can just one little horse destroy the world? But, you know, maybe it's a big horse. I don't know. It, it, just, it, just, pay, it just causes us difficulty to understand. But we can catch the glimpse. Of, we know what he's talking about here, right? Jesus is coming in power and authority. He's clothed, verse 13, the robe dipped in blood. And this is where the text came alive to me this week. We see His robe literally baptized in blood. It means it's been dipped in blood. It's been dunked in blood. There was some blood shed, and the robe of Jesus became stained and saturated with His blood. Some think it's His own blood. I don't think so. I think the best explanation that comes is is this is the blood that he spilt upon his enemies. It splashed up upon his robe. Let's put a few things together and then we'll see what I'm talking about. Turn back to Revelation 14. We see beginning in verse 17 about an angel who's come out of the temple, which is heaven. He has a sharp sickle. And then another angel, as the power of fire came out of the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So you got these angels talking to each other and the angel's going to come and, and gather these together. If you know the other parables of Jesus, He always talks about the angels being the reapers and He reaps both the good and the bad. In this case, He's reaping His enemies. And these enemies are viewed as grapes. Alright? Catch that, catch that vision, guys. Okay? An angel is viewed as a grape. Caleb, you know what a grape is like? What happens when you squish a grape, eat a grape? What happens to your mouth? Bursts out, right? All this. Okay, keep that imagery in mind because that's what's going to happen. So the angel, verse 19, swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into a great winepress of the wrath of God. Threw them into this great, this great bin, right? This great big bucket. All these grapes are in this bucket and the wine press was trodden outside the city. And blood came out from the wine press 
Right there you see the grapes are not real grapes. They're like people. And the blood is coming out of the wine press. And the, and the blood, there's so much people, so much grapes in here, so much pressing down. As you're pressing down on all of these you know, grapes, and sometimes in the ancient world even they stomped on them with their feet like this, and all this blood from all these people and all this is coming up and it's spilling out of the wine press and it's flowing. Look at how far it flows up to a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's a lot of grits, a lot of people. And who's the one stamping the, the wrath of God? Do you see why Jesus' robe is baptized in blood? It's when He's squashing His enemies. It's the picture. It's the judgment. The harvest isn't grapes, it's wicked people who Jesus just keeps smashing, keeps getting every last little bit of blood out of them. And we see this, if we turn back to Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 20. The beast was seized with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived, and those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worship his image. Um, that's not where I'm looking for. Where am I looking I'm not looking at verse 20. Ah, verse 15. His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with him may strike the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. I mean, that's, why, that's why I think that the, the robe of Jesus baptized, dunked in the blood, is the blood of his enemies. Is he just showing the, the marks of the war which Jesus has begun to press out on people. And so he's coming back on this white horse. He's got this red robe kind of down at the bottom and it's bloody. And, and, and that, is, that, that just combines perfectly. Listen to Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 and 3. <laughs> the question is asked, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads the wine press. See, the one who presses the wine press has the grape juice splatter up on him. And he says, Jesus, your, why is your robe splattered like that? And here's what he says. He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me, and I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is the lion. When the lion comes, he's trouncing out those who don't believe. Those who aren't his friends who have not submitted to him. And it's interesting here is it says in Isaiah 63 that I have trodden the winepress alone. There's the wine press. Jesus doesn't say, okay, angels, why don't you try that for me? Stain your own garments. He says, no, 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 I've done it myself. I've, I've done it alone. I'm smashing these people and pressing them down and letting the blood come up. And what's interesting, that's exactly what we find in verse 14. You don't see it at first, but, but I'm hoping then that, that as I exposit the Scripture, then you'll say, Wow, never noticed that. Now I see. That's clearly what has to take place. Look at verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, behind the white horse, following him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on white horses. The armies following Jesus are saints, as His people. These are the people, according to Psalm 110, verse 3, who volunteered freely in the day of His power. They say, I want to come with Him. could be us. We don't know. If we've died and gone to heaven, we will be there with Him coming back. could be us. But check out how they're described. They're on white horses, well, waging war, but their garments are clean. They are fine linen, white and clean. You know what that means? It means that we won't be fighting. We're not treading the wrath of the winepress of God. It's Jesus who is doing that. The armies of Jesus that follow Him are for show. right? Because they're not fighting. They're, they're in fine linen and garments. And you know what? They don't have any weapons. They're just riding on horses. Thinking we're big stuff. Right? Here's the great reality of these verses. That Jesus fights for us 
He fights on our behalf. He's the one that treads down the enemies. He's the one that suppresses them. We merely follow after Him. And the reason why we don't fight is because God Himself has said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. See, we trust all vindication, all judgment to God who's going to judge with a righteous judgment. We just say, God, that's Yours. I'm not going to judge someday. Perhaps maybe I'll be following You in this, these white horses and You're the one going out. You're the one with the blood-stained garments. But not me. I'm letting You do that for me. Because vengeance is Yours. And I love how Jesus fights. <laughs> Look in verse 15. It says, From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations. Okay, so you got, you got out of His mouth is coming the sword that He's just piercing people with. Alright? Now you say, is, is it really going to be a sword that comes out of His mouth? You know, I don't think so. But what it shows, it shows that, that something coming out of His mouth is sharp, Right? As Hebrews 4.12 says, that the Word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I think what happens here is that God, Jesus, when He fights, fights with His mouth. He just speaks and His enemies fall over. These words are the power of Jesus, how He fights. When He created the world, He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the waters be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. Like That happens, right? Let let. Let the land swarm with teeming creatures. And it was so. And so also when Jesus speaks to His enemies, they are defeated. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. All right? This is a great verse. It says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. With the breath of His mouth, He's going to slay them. Such is the power of God. He, he just breathes upon His enemies and they wilt. It's not because He has bad breath, okay? It's because He has the power in His Word to execute judgment. Just His authority in His words. I mean, think about His earthly ministry. You remember when the whole Roman cohort and the, the leaders of the chief priests and the, the sons of Israel came out to arrest Jesus in the garden? Jesus knew where they were coming for Him and to protect His disciples, He stood up and said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am He. And do you remember what happened? It says in John 18, verse 6, that they drew back and fell to the ground. I'm the guy you're looking for. You're looking for Me. And they, whoa, those words were... you know. Even in His earthly ministry, people were falling back at His words. And so likewise in Revelation 19, He merely speaks the victory and it comes forth. Martin Luther said it well, right? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure for lo, His doom is sure. One what? One little word shall fell Him. It's Jesus. The little word is going to fall His enemies. In fact, that little word that comes out of his enemies, as Martin Luther describes it, is so great that it says in verse 15 that that word comes forth and strikes down nations. He's going to utterly defeat them. And, as it says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then that phrase we already looked at, he treads the winepress, the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. I just want to catch this phrase here, right? Ruling them with a rod of iron, right? He's going to domineer them. He's going to strike them. He is going to destroy them. Somewhat the picture here. It's an allusion back to Psalm 2 when the kings of the earth are taking a stand and the rulers against the Lord and His anointed. And they're saying, how can, we, how can we strike down Jesus? And God sits in the heavens and laughs. He says, no, there's going to be damned. I'm going to my king upon Zion. And He is going to, as it says in Psalm 2, verse 9, break them with a rod of iron and shatter them with earthenware, like earthenware. So picture a, picture a rod of iron on a clay, you know, a clay jug there, and you take your baseball bat made of iron. This isn't aluminum, guys. This is heavy iron. And you just, no contest. That's how God rules and dominates, shepherds over these people, suppresses them because they're His enemies. This isn't shepherd in the, the nice sense. This is shepherd in the mean sense. So these are the enemies. He's going to destroy them and get them out of the way. See, when God's word of judgment comes, kingdoms and nations won't, be stand, won't stand 
They'll be destroyed like clay pots facing the wrath of a swinging iron club. In fact, you can even see that. Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon, the great prosperous city, struck down. They wage war against the Lamb. Chapter 17, verse 14. And the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And those who are with them are called and chosen and faithful. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And He's going to smash them down. Though they fight against Him, Jesus is going to take care of them. And that's how this view, vision of Jesus ends. Verse 16, on His robe and on His thigh. It's probably on His robe, even on His thigh. There it is. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just say He's the sovereign. You give me a king, Jesus is king over Him. You give me a Lord, Jesus is Lord over Him. He's the master of all masters. He's the sovereign of all sovereigns. He rules all kings. That's just who He is. And He's coming back to obtain His rightful rule over the earth. Well, Jesus preparing for war. Here's my second point. The second vision. And I saw, verse 17. We now see the birds preparing for victory. And then I saw heaven, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. In these verses, we see the angels summoning the birds. They're calling the birds in mid-heaven. Where mid-heaven is, I'm not exactly sure, but they're, they're out there somewhere, and he's calling these birds. And these aren't birds like robins or bluebirds or sparrows. These are vultures. These are buzzards. These are carcass-eating birds you know, who flow around and drift and look for the carcasses and then go down and just tear carcasses apart. And notice what's on the menu of the day. Flesh is on the menu because these are flesh-eating birds. Well, you can have the flesh of kings. Right? These buzzards are there. Well, do you want the flesh of kings? Well, yep, they're the kings over there. The, the flesh of commanders. The commanders are over there. We have the flesh of the mighty men. Oh, here are the, the flesh of horses and their riders. Oh, yep, it's right there. There's horses and there's riders over there. And these buzzards, they look upon their buffet. They say, wow, this is pretty nice. And in summer, even it says the flesh of every kind of human being, whether slave or free, small or great. They're just, they're just all around. This, this, this massive buffet before a massive number of birds. I mean, this is, this is like the earth. People on the earth who rebelled against the Lord, all done, all slain, and the buzzards are coming to eat them up. It's a bloody scene. I mean, just picture the ground with dead bodies all around. Picture Birds all, all around just picking at these bodies, eating them, and just tearing them limb for limb. You know, they're down and just, just tearing all these bodies apart. How are think of the, the last battle? But, it, but listen, it's far more than a bloody gross scene. It's the ultimate in disgrace. When, when the Old Testament speaks of how shameful it is for bodies of people to be eaten by birds, it just often speaks this way. The three prominent prophets in the Old Testament use the imagery. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel speak of the horrors of judgment that fall upon those who are disobedient and unbelieving. So God will leave you out there and, and the buzzards will come and the vultures will come down and just eat your flesh. The cry of the psalmist is that the enemies of Israel have invaded Jerusalem and things are so bad, the psalmist says in Psalm 79, verse 2, they've given the dead bodies of God's servants to be food for the birds of heaven. Listen, it's so bad, they kill us and they just let us out. No regard for the human body. It's like a disgrace to be eaten by birds. See, it's one thing to be killed in war, it's another thing to be disgraced. It makes it worse. Even in death, where you can't do anything with your body anymore, to be eaten by the birds is like the ultimate disgrace. Maybe you remember at the end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, Saul had been destroyed and, and those who destroyed him put him outside on the wall of Bethshan. It took some mighty men to say, no, no, he can't be there. And so they took him. And then actually, I think they burned his body. They said, what about burn his body rather than being eaten by vultures? But again, the key to this, these verses isn't the bloodiness of the battle, isn't the disgrace of, of being eaten by birds, but mostly I think the point here, verse 17 and 18, 
is the birdsman sum of the feast which hasn't even yet been prepared. It's not like there are bodies out there and he's saying, oh, well, you've got to yeah, come and get the bodies. No, come, because there are going to be bodies here is the idea behind this. Because see, the war hasn't been fought entirely yet. It's not all been satisfied. Yes, there has been some, but they are being assembled here for the victory which hasn't yet been gained. We see Jesus preparing for war in verse 11 through 16 and the victory hasn't yet come because that comes in, 20, in 21. But here... Come and assemble for the feast. Notice it's in the past tense. It's prophetic. When God says it, it will come to pass. I mean, all of Revelation, it's interesting, you look at it, much of it is written in the past tense. Most of it's written in the past tense because it's what John saw, but what he saw is what will be. So certain is what will be that in God's mind it's in the past tense. Well, John wasn't the only one who spoke about this scene, about the the vultures eating the enemies of God. Ezekiel said that as well. Ezekiel 39. Listen to this. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you. It's a great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh, and just, just hear the flesh and the blood coming through and through like it is in Revelation 19. You will eat the flesh, talking to the birds, of mighty men, and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls of all the fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted, and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. You will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men, and all the men of war, declares the Lord. That's exactly what John saw. This is the battle of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 39. But there's, you know, there's subtle differences here. We see in verse 21 of Revelation 19 that, that the birds were filled with their flesh. Though when Ezekiel describes it, he describes it they are gorged in their flesh. Right? I mean, they have, they have eaten so much they've gluttoned themselves. Some translations say... There's just so much that they've just eaten. Oh, you know, the bird. Can you picture gluttonous birds? Kind of go, oh, oh, man. I know sometimes when I leave a, uh, a buffet place, I'm like that. I'm like, oh, man, that was good. I ate too much. Right? But you got a whole score of birds, and they're all glutted from the, the gorged, from so much they eat. They eat so much flesh, they're not able to fly anymore. Got to digest it a little bit. Drink so much blood, the birds are drunk with the blood. Terrible and it's certain God's enemies will be defeated in the last battle. You know, this is a theme through Revelation. You even see that in uh, Revelation chapter 12. It's a a great chapter, just even thinking about this this past week. But in Revelation 12, you see Satan desperately trying to destroy Jesus. In verse 4, the the dragon standing before the woman who's about to give birth so that when she gives birth, he might devour her child. There was, there was Satan trying to kill Jesus and, and waiting there for the birth. And then when Jesus was born and you know, sent off to Egypt, there's something big behind Herod and his slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. That Satan trying to destroy this child. But in Revelation 12, verse 6, the woman fled in the wilderness. She had a place prepared. She'd be nourished there. The, protect, the child was protected. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, ruled the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God into his throne, protected. Satan didn't get the child, was going after the child, didn't get the child. Satan missed his opportunity, and then he's cast down to earth, is what it says in verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them, because Satan's not in you anymore. Satan's out of you. Heaven's been pure, but earth, oh, woe to you. And the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Satan was long defeated ago when he missed Jesus. He went to shoot him and missed. Instead, Jesus was victorious. Satan's cast out of heaven, down to the earth for a short time. And he's just boiling angry. Just super mad that he missed it. And so he's just, he's just trying to wreak all kind of havoc he has. But he knows full well that a day is coming when he's going to die. He knows his judgment is sure. 
And that is coming. He knows his judgment is short. And that's why I'm calling my last point, verses 19 through 21, preparing for defeat. Because we see in verse 19, I saw again, there's that third marker, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So here, they're preparing for war, but in many ways, I'm, I'm trying to show they're really preparing for defeat. It's an exercise really in humility, in vanity. I mean, yeah, sure, they put armor on, sure, they put a helmet on, sure, they grab their sword, sure, they, they unsheath their sword, but it's, it's all for show, right? There's, there's no, there's, maybe there's a fight in them, but there isn't much of a fight because the, the way the cosmic conflict, it just comes to an end. Look at verse 20. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performs the signs in his presence, by which he deceived, and those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with a sword, and the birds were eating them, right? And they, which came out from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with all their flesh. And, and, and so you see, like, war's over. It's like done. I mean, verse 20, and the beast was seized with him. So you got this big war coming up, and he just said, okay, seize peace. I mean, this is Jesus. He's just seizing these guys, and he's just throwing them in the lake of fire. <laughs> that was, that's the word. No wonder we don't fight, right? And this sword comes out of his mouth and kills everybody, and the buzzards of the fields are, are eating it. I mean, I, 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 I just thought about this. If you want drama, I mean, God, you could have maybe drawn this out a little bit for us, maybe known a little bit more about what the, what the battle was like. I mean, that's what they do in the movies, right? Don't, don't, the, don't they drag out the battle? I mean, I'm not a big movie watcher. Um, I, did, I remember a couple years ago seeing Narnia when it came out. And, uh, and I remember watching Narnia, and the, and the whole thing is leading up to this final scene, right? It's uh, Peter and Edmund and Lucy and... Lucy and um, Susan fighting against the white witch. And if you've seen the movie, you remember the, the battle that takes place, right? The armies line up on this side. And you see the armies lining up. And then the camera goes over here and you see the white witch lining up. And, and then you look at the intensity of the people's faces, you know, and they're all prepared for war and some of them maybe are scared a little bit and the white witch is stern over here. And then the camera fades out and it fades back and it swings around and... And Peter, you know, puts his sword like this and some birds come with the first, first swoop of things. And then, then they start charging towards one another. This huge, this huge line. But you've got to draw it out, right? So they're going slow motion, you know. Because <laughs> you've got to draw this battle out. You've got to draw it big, big, you know. Well, that's what sells. And, and, and as the battle comes, you think about how, how it looks like the white witch is going to destroy Peter, right? Just right on him and going back and forth and Edmund was seriously injured and Susan and Lucy are off someplace and you're, this whole thing is... Out, and then, just when you think Peter's going to lose his life, then comes Aslan in and then they, they restore it and it just goes... Half an hour probably, I'm guessing, you know? A good chunk of the movie is all this battle... That's the way they do it in movies. And if you want to sell books, that's the way you do it in a book too, right? You, you describe everything going on and what a great battle scene this would have been. But when you come to the book of Revelation, it's, it's over before it starts. You simply read, the beast was seized and with him the false prophets. If you want to sell books, right, you convince the reader right, that Jesus was on the verge of losing and he was almost dying and then his father came in and rescued him out, but... But you know what? The story is way better than that. But in this battle, though, it's just, it's just finished. God isn't interested in selling books. He's interested in giving us comfort in knowing that this is how the battle is going to take place. One little word shall fell him. All of them. He's going to take the beast, going to take the false prophet, just dump him in the lake of fire. In chapter 20, we're going to read about how Satan himself was taken and dumped in the lake of fire. Same mellow, zero drama almost as took place here. And, and, I, and I think that... Uh, there's great comfort in this, isn't there? I mean, I've just been describing you judgment and judgment and judgment in Jesus, and, and I know that in my heart what comes is, is just tremendous comfort. 
Darren read for us this morning, had it not been the Lord that was on our side, they would have swallowed us alive. They would have buried us. They would have swamped us. But, but God is on our side, so what happens? He has rescued us, and He has helped us, and He has delivered us, and that we can rejoice. Jesus wins in the end, and it's not even close. It's like we're playing for the Boston Celtics, not the Rockford Christian High School Lions, right? No offense to the Lions, but we're on... There's like no contest. One of the most destructive thoughts that can ever come into your mind, let me say at this point, is, is a dualism in the world. As if there's this cosmic battle that takes place from good and evil, and boy, we just, boy, God, I hope the good overcomes. Now, there is a sense where we're here on the earth and we do fight not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers. There is this cosmic battle taking place, all right? And to us, it might feel like the, the good on the one side, right? And, and, and the bad on the other. And there is this battle and they're fighting, but w- when you peel back the layer and the cosmic reality, you realize the battle's going on just because only, only just because Satan only has a little bit of time. And that's why he's waging war. But when you pull it back and when God says the battle's over, the battle's done. And there's no fighting against God. There's like zero fighting against God. Christ is the all-powerful one who gained the victory for us to the cross. And whatever Satan does in this day and age, it's all because God has cast him to the earth for a short time. When his time is up, the battle is over. It's not a battle between two equal forces. It may look like that. And it may feel like that. You know, and maybe the riders following behind the horse when he came for the waging war were maybe a bit nervous not knowing this or not realizing, hey, there's a battle. I mean, those are, those are, those are armies down there. But they're glorified, so they have perfect faith. But, but really, there's like no battle. The battle is done. Any preparation for war that might take place against the Lord and His anointed are feeble at best. That's why Psalm 2 says, God's in the heavens, He laughs. <laughs> you think you can take me? You can't. You can't. That's why I've entitled my last point, really preparing for defeat. That's what they were doing. Yeah, yeah they were preparing for war, but in reality, they were preparing for defeat. For defeat, they're preparing to be defeated because Jesus defeats them soundly. And this is the thing that we proclaim as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're proclaiming His death until He comes. Yes, yes, we rejoice in our crucified Savior, and yes, it gives us a spirit of meekness and gentleness, but we know that Big Brother's coming, right? I mean, we know that that the lion is going to come and rule. And as we celebrate and eat the bread and drink the cup, we're saying that we're, we, we are trusting this Jesus who's going to come again in a different way than He came the first time. So let's pray together and then we'll celebrate the supper.